Hey everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of the Cannabis Curious Podcast. This time I talked to Ernest Tony of BIPOC Can, a cannabis business network aimed at increasing representation and economic growth in the legal cannabis industry. Ernest dropped some gems in this episode about how both government and businesses can enable and support equity in their legal state markets. Thank you for making the time. Um, and I am excited to have this conversation. So where I always like to start with my guests is just anything that you'd like to share with the listeners about yourself prior to entering the cannabis industry, just as a, you know, a piece of context, either personal, professional, or both that kind of help people just ground you, ground themselves in who um, Ernest is. And then from there, we can move into, you know, more of a deeper dive on what you're doing currently in cannabis. So, um, anything that you'd like to share about yourself prior to entering cannabis? Yeah, sure. So my background, you know, from an academic and early like professional standpoint, uh, was, was in the sport, uh, and nonprofit administration, uh, world. Uh, so I went to, you know, school for at James Madison university in Virginia, uh, as an undergrad, I studied kinesiology, which is. Uh, similar to exercise science, but it's you know the study of the body, how it functions. Uh, for grad school, I did sport management uh, and had you know a dreams and aspirations of uh, working either as like an athletic director or you know it's within you know some administrative uh, uh, some administrative you know portion of the sports world. So I was able to have some you know early successes. Uh, Spent a year working as a sales consultant in Major League Baseball uh, back in 2010. And immediately prior to joining the cannabis industry, I actually worked at the national governing body for a niche sport called Ultimate Frisbee. And while working there, I oversaw all of the uh, adult uh, competition and athlete programs and even had a a year-long stint where I served as the U.S. national team manager and traveled internationally with our top teams. So uh, a lot of that work during that five-year period uh, was about increasing visibility for the sport. Uh, Also had a huge focus on trying to make the sport more accessible and inclusive to gender, uh, racial, and uh, minorities of like sexual orientation. So a lot of the work that I'm doing now uh, with my current venture you know, I, I sort of had like a some uh, early you know experiences and a background with within you know focusing on uh, increasing access, making things more equitable. So I yeah I get to fortunate enough that I get to tap on tap into that experience. Uh, that's awesome. That's a that's such an interesting um, background. So what kind of motivated you to move from that sort of sports world to cannabis? And what did that look like, that journey? Sure. So I moved to Colorado in 2011. So it was a full year before Colorado Amendment 64 uh, was passed. Uh, And I lived right in downtown Denver. And in uh, January 2014, when Colorado became the first uh, state in the U.S. to have an adult use market, I was very interested in what uh, that meant not only like for the state, uh, not only in terms of economic opportunities, business opportunities, but it was just a really interesting time. Uh, when I moved to Colorado, I, you know, had, I was interested in cannabis. I was able to get like a medical card. So I had, uh, so the only interactions that I had was from like a consumer facing standpoint, 
Um, but I was very interested in, you know, the politics behind the plant, the history uh, behind the plant. Uh, and it was just very interesting, like being here literally on ground zero and seeing the way that a new industry was being formed and everything that came with it. You know, we saw increased tourism. You saw uh, a lot of uh, startups and entrepreneurs. You saw a ton of uh, media coverage, uh, you know, about the opportunities for the industry. And we also saw like that, uh, you know, with the increased tourism, uh, a lot of like a big, a big housing boom. And we saw gentrification and things like that, too. So I was somebody that followed the economics of the industry quite closely and um, was always interested. Uh, but uh, around 2016, my wife started working in the industry. And that's when I started paying a bit more, like, you know, close attention to, uh, you know, to it from like a business standpoint. And I think right around that time in 2016 was when I was really trying to figure out, hey, what makes sense in terms of like long-term career aspirations. It seems like this is an industry that was not going anywhere and I had an opportunity to sort of get in uh, at the early stage. And that really intrigued me. Uh, so I spent you know, a couple of years learning about it and following you know, some of the major you know, uh, magazines and like uh, countrywide like legislation and was really just trying to do my part to have a place within the space. Um, so that eventually happened. I made that transition in 2018 when I started working at Marijuana Business Daily. Okay, interesting. And so your first role, do you want to talk a little bit about what you did at Marijuana Business Daily? Or would you rather us kind of transition into the BIPOC camp? No, I'll talk about that because I think it's important. Um, you know, I was very excited to have that opportunity. Like I wasn't quite sure where I was going to get my start. But, uh, you know, I felt like that was going to be an awesome place to, you know, get some amazing industry knowledge. Uh, for those that, you know, aren't aware, Marijuana Business Daily was formed in 2011 and quickly became the leading uh, business news and media resource for the uh, medical and retail cannabis industry. Uh, and they've also become uh, known uh, widely for uh, being the host of the world's largest suite of business-to-business -business, uh, conferences and expos for the cannabis industry. So a lot of folks are familiar with MJ BizCon, which is like the annual meeting uh, for global cannabis professionals. It's usually in Vegas. Uh, last year, for example, there were 33,000 people from 80 countries. Um, so I knew that if I was able to get in you know, with MJ Biz, that I have a great foundation in terms of understanding how the cannabis industry works, what the business opportunities are, and so forth. Uh, when they brought me on, I focused on some new business initiatives and in late 2018, early 2019, the focus was uh, on our international expansion. So I quickly uh, transitioned to become the company's first international marketing manager. And during that time, the work that I was doing um, focused on increasing global readership, uh, driving event registrations to our international events and also forming partnerships uh, with uh, entities in markets that we did not have a strong physical presence. Uh, so 2019 was a high growth year. Um, it was it, it, it marked the expansion of some uh, MJ Biz Daily's first um, conferences and symposiums that were held outside of uh, North America. So I played a key role in the marketing to uh, get us into uh, 
into Europe. Uh, we hosted the European Cannabis Symposium, and then later in the year, uh, the Latin American Cannabis Symposium in Colombia. So I, I ran, I did those initiatives, uh, supported our uh, conference that was held annually in Canada, in Toronto. And then uh, the latter half of my tenure, I switched to focusing entirely on partnership marketing initiatives. That required me to really form greater, um, you know, uh, alliances with uh, uh, groups such as, um, let's say, like media, uh, conference organizers, um, advocacy and nonprofit based groups. And uh, they touched all verticals. You know, it was uh, international partners, it was domestic partners, and and uh, some of the categories included, you know, trying to find great players, great partners in investing in hemp and retail and finance uh, to really support all the products and, you know, the, the information services that we are providing. So I was lucky to be in a lot of, uh, the, I was lucky to be a part of the decision-making process in terms of uh, identifying, like, who we were going to work with that could become you know, essentially ambassadors or our brand to drive like our presence in places where we did not have a strong, um, strong presence or following. Yeah, it sounds like, um, you know, just a very exciting time all around. MJ, you know, Biz is definitely one of my go-to resources for cannabis news, and I'm sure for many people listening. And everyone that I talked to in the industry couldn't recommend that Vegas conference more. You know, I I hear from everyone how helpful it is, how fun it is, how, you know, informative it is. And so um, it's just like your background is so interesting. You like came into to kind of like this news source and the start of planning events and then, you know, began working on the networking and the business partnerships like you're talking about. And I mean, internationally, across all industries. Um, so like you kind of shot out of a cannon, really, probably at like one of the most <laughs> There was a ton of momentum at that time as well, especially where you were at in Colorado. I mean, Colorado is one of the states that is still really on the map as, as a leader in the U.S. that a lot of the other states like Michigan, where I'm located, are looking to to understand what our future might look like. Yes, entirely. I mean, it was I, I think for me it's before getting into the industry, it was just really like i don't know it was just fun you know watching to see like uh what was happening in colorado and i think a lot of the world a lot of you know neighboring states you know they started to really focus on what was happening here to see like okay if colorado can be successful like if washington state can be successful then what does that mean for our market so i think uh yeah colorado has been um has definitely paved the way in a lot of ways for this industry and i feel you know lucky to to be here at the right time and to have access to some, you know, uh, to the opportunities I've had so far. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds, yeah, it just sounds like you were in a really great position. And so, you know, I have to imagine that a lot of what you did prior to entering cannabis and then even um, with, you know, marijuana uh, business daily translates into what you're currently doing. So, you know, I'd love for you just to kind of give the listeners a little bit of background on sort of how you made the transition to running BIPOC Can and what it is. Sure. So 2020 was difficult for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And, you know, pandemic alone, it 
you know, there's like a lot of challenges. I know that when we were working at MJ Biz Daily, it really disrupted a lot of our business model. Um, you know, the majority of our revenue being made from these large in-person gatherings, which could no longer be held. So you have to pivot and, you know, make a lot of transitions. So I think uh, the, the uh, early half, half of the year, it was just, you know, being adaptable, uh, learning, trying to go with the flow and trying to figure out how you can uh, still thrive, you know, amidst all this uncertainty. And then we started to see a ton of uh, social and civil unrest across the country. And I think uh, a lot of it had to do with police brutality. I mean, I think you saw uh, just not only like the entire country and the world, but the cannabis industry become more outspoken about some of the histories with, you know, uh, cannabis being used as a tool for systemic oppression. Um, this was all like on the heels of uh, George Floyd being murdered. And, you know, what I saw like in the subsequent weeks was just a lot of business executives within the cannabis space, you know, putting uh, posts and, you know, claims on social media saying, yes, we stand in solidarity. Yes, we recognize that there have been uh, some real issues, you know, with the way that cannabis has uh, been policed. Uh, I think you started seeing more awareness about the fact that um, the majority of the folks like who have been incarcerated, arrested, and targeted for cannabis possession tend to be, you know, uh, minorities, you know, coming from black and brown or uh, socially disadvantaged communities. And some of these same folks are also not uh, present or don't have the same type of access to the corporate and profit centers uh, of this multi-billion dollar industry. So we saw like a lot of, so I saw just like a lot of companies like making posts about how, uh, yeah, there's a problem. We need to figure out how we can, you know, go about, you know, making change, how to make it more, you know, inclusive and accessible. And it really, um, I was sort of in this position where I was also trying to figure out like what I wanted to do and what my place was. And I really felt that I had a few different options. Uh, one being I could have stayed where I was and tried to, you know, make some changes internally. Um, essentially like, come up with some ideas, some recommendations that may or may not get approved uh, that tackle, you know, this, uh, these challenges related to equity and inclusion and access. Uh, another possibility was to leave or go elsewhere, you know, get hired by another company and have more of a direct uh, influence and decision making, um, you know, along those fronts. Uh, but ultimately, I decided that, uh, you know, one of the best ways for me to make an impact when I recognize that there is like a lack of minority, uh, specifically black owned businesses, uh, leadership uh, within this space, you know, I felt that one of the best ways for me to really walk the walk was to just do that. Uh, so I, you know, had this idea, I wanted to basically like be spending more of my time on a direct day, uh, on a day to day basis to you, you, I basically wanted to use my actions more directly to help others, uh, you know, make this industry more accessible. And um, so I started a business that does that, you know, so um, I was fortunate enough to build some really awesome relationships within cannabis and have some really cool insights. And uh, I have a very unique approach to like how I build relationships. And I thought that BIPOC can be a way to bring people in. So for the listeners, uh, so that's my company is called BIPOC CAN. Um, and it's really like an acronym. Uh, the first half being BIPOC, which which represents or which stands for uh, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. Cannabis uh, is the C-A-N. So BIPOC CAN is really like 
connecting BIPOC people to the cannabis industry. Like so many people, I think in 2020, you know, took a pause for so many reasons, um, the pandemic and then the civil and racial unrest, like you're saying. And um, I think it's really admirable that you took though that time, those emotions that were even stirred up inside of you to like redirect your energy and your time to figuring out how you could have the greatest impact. Um especially in the industry that you are interested in right now, which is cannabis. And, you know, I couldn't agree more that um, that the equity and the access in this industry is just severely lacking. Um, and, you know, it definitely was a conversation. I think that some people were having, but has bubbled up to the surface a lot more in 2020. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about exactly what BIPOC can is and kind of who you would like to be a member? And Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think there's like so many different ways that you can tackle like the equity and uh like the lack of representation, lack of diversity within the industry. Uh, clearly, you know, um, protests, uh, you know, policymaking, uh, advocacy organizations all play their role. It's very important. Um, but I don't, it's not necessarily like the only way to do it. Uh, so I was trying to come up with a way that I could directly make change to create new opportunities for folks who, uh, either don't have them or have been excluded. So when I say that BIPOC can is about connecting, uh, you know, black indigenous professionals of color to the industry, um, that's for speaking to a recruitment element. Um, what the point that I'm trying to make is, you know, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's growing. It's very nascent. There are opportunities for anybody who wants to be involved in this industry to get into the industry. Um, so one of the approaches that I'm doing is reaching out directly, making the statement that, hey, like if you want to be in this space, then you can and you should. Uh, so what does that mean? If you're a professional who decides that, OK, I want to have a career change and I want to get into this industry, then you could look to BIPOC as an entry point, you know, um, join and figure out what it is that your goals are i can get you connected to you know people that you're get you connected to the right places make some introductions and things like that let's say you have uh, a service that you can provide maybe you know you're a graphic designer or a marketer or a web designer or you know an accountant. you have professional services that can support any industry why can't it support this one so you could again can look to bipoc in as your entry point and figure out, okay, well, what is it that you have to offer that can support, you know, businesses that, that can create growth, not only for them, but for you. And let's say that you're a business owner and maybe you have, you're not in the cannabis industry, but your business is one that can serve this industry. It's the exact same thing. So I am taking, uh, you know, that uh, direct approach. Uh, there's definitely the recruitment uh, piece. Um, there's an educational component where you're trying to let people know about, hey, what the opportunities are. And if they're able to join, then try to steer them into a way, steer them to help create, uh, you know, economic opportunities for them and for the people they serve. Uh, so when you say uh, who are the target members, I am looking for business owners. I'm looking for uh, professionals. Uh, I'm looking for 
the can of curious <laughs> who uh, want to know more about the industry, but might not exactly know uh, how to get involved. Uh, so I want them to come to BIPOC can, you know, so if you're, you know, uh, if you're a black indigenous person of color who, you know, fits that criteria, then I want you to talk to me. Uh, likewise, if you're a non-BIPOC person who believes in the, that this industry should be more accessible, that it should be more equitable, then I also want to talk to you and I want you to, I'm interested in you joining my uh, community as well. Um, so for example, uh, if you were to look at my, you know, visit the site, it's BIPOCN.com, uh, www.BIPOCANN.com. Uh, I have a business directory page. So when someone joins as a business member, I'm able to put their logo on the website. I'm able to promote what they do. Uh, race doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. What I care about is, do you align with what we're trying to achieve? Creating a more accessible and equitable industry for folks who have not had that access. And if you are someone that joins, then now you your brand not only gets seen and promoted, for uh, being aligned with the mission of this uh, company, uh, but you also have access to a diverse, you know, network of professionals and business owners that you could hire, or that could be your vendors, that you could create platforms for if you host like conferences or podcasts. These are folks that you can bring directly to support your diversity, equity, inclusion goals by also giving them a platform to be seen to be heard and to support their um, their growth and their business goals. I think it's really, really important what you're doing because I do think this is a concern for people in the cannabis industry. And sometimes people just don't know where to start or how to get connected or plugged in. And that's like exactly what you're helping to provide is a place for people to start to connect. Um, how, I guess, my question would be is why why do you think there are these equity and access issues in the cannabis industry? Why are we seeing this industry become very whitewashed? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to look at the history of cannabis and cannabis prohibition. I mean, it goes back 100 years. And I think there was just like a lot of fear about what cannabis would do. I think there was a lot of fear, you know, uh, 100 years ago that... Um, you know, like a lot of these, a lot of the prohibition, you know, it was, pro it was prohibited and you had, you know, black and brown communities that were being targeted. And um, I think there's like a lot of fear um, around this plant. Um, and if you then take a look back into, I guess, like the war on drugs, you know, you can look back now and see that it was very clear that that was covert language that was basically saying let's target these communities of color and um really it stripped away like a lot of rights it stripped away like economic you know wealth it stripped away opportunities it stripped away family you know you put people behind bars you ruin their life over this plant so i think if you i'm just going to sort of speak about my experience um you know being a black man um and like the community that i grew up with uh going to sort of <laughs> give a little tangent, but it's a very personal experience. So I grew up in a small town in rural Virginia uh, that's 20 minutes away from where the Civil War ended. There's a lot of racial history there. Uh, my hometown is one, like back in the 50s, 
got a lot of attention because we had a student-led protest uh, because the all-black school had inferior conditions to the all-white public schools. My hometown was one of the five cases that was uh, that was in the Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education, which required schools to integrate. And my hometown then decided that, uh, despite that being a law of the land, they just did not want to integrate. So they re removed funding, essentially closing down public schools for five years, meaning you could not go to school if you were a black person or a poor white person. So, and that was back in the 60s. <laughs> then you have the war on drugs in the 80s. And then you have, like in my hometown, for example, a correctional facility like, that uh, came to town in like 1988 and essentially became like the largest economic driver, job creator uh, in the town uh, besides Walmart, for example. So I think of just this one example of a community that, uh, you know, it was diverse. You had a strong black population that was not only stripped away from education opportunities. And when you don't have education, a lot of times it limits your upward mobility. So you have, you're stripped away from economic opportunities. Uh, so economic wealth, generational wealth is something that, uh, you just have less of in minority communities. Uh, and then you look at my town that is dealing with like war on drug policing properties or sorry, policing, uh, um, processes and it brings a uh, correctional facility which over the years i started to see um folks from my neighborhood you know getting targeted getting arrested and one of the things that um i speak to this because there wasn't a ton of opportunity in my hometown and like my father started working at this correctional facility worked there for like 20 years so it was very challenging for me to sort of see how the the place that the employer that was putting food on the table was also one that was profiting off of having a large like black and brown um, you know demographic of you know people being arrested being incarcerated like I would literally sometimes go home or leave you know school get on the bus go to the administrative offices where my father worked and see like an uncle or an aunt or a cousin who would greet me out front in their orange jumpsuit um, and saying hi to me. So you have a lot of communities. You have a lot of folks who see that the pipeline for their community is a path that leads directly to incarceration. And when you have a plant like cannabis that's been used for a hundred years as a system, as like a tool for oppression, then there's a lot of fear around some of those there's a lot of mistrust and there's also a lot of fear. Like there's a lot of people from my hometown that don't even want to touch this plant. They don't want to touch this industry because to this day, like the plant has been the, the means to ruin lives and to prevent you from having access and to break apart families and to put you behind bars. So there's so much, many factors that play into it, whether it's, like I said, the lack of uh, generational wealth. Um, and when you have this industry that's just like blooming in a place like Colorado, which is not really the most diverse place in the country, um, you have a lot of folks who are already here at Ground Zero getting in into business ownership, understanding how to navigate its structures. 
and they're already set up for success. Like whenever like the next um, market opens, like you can take your millions, you can take your reach, you can take your networks and you can already have a direct impact before some of the other folks who are just trying to figure out if, if, you know, I, I don't know, like it's very complicated, but <laughs> part of it has to come with, you know, decades long of, uh, you know, prohibition, the way that the plan has uh, been used systemically to oppress uh, folks that don't have like a majority representation. And then you have other stigmas that I think are very unique to, you know, communities of color, uh, whether it's like I said, fear or mistrust, or um, there's a lot of reasons that there's not access. Um, and then I think you end up having situations where, um, I don't know, like you have to be intentional. Uh, if you start a business and it's successful and you tend to, you know, have, you don't have like dedicated HR systems where you're saying we're going to commit to bringing in people of, you know, a, a varied, like diverse backgrounds. Uh, if you don't have policies in place that are intentional about how you can recruit new people in, and if it's sort of like, sort of like, hey, like we're looking for internal referrals. Well, you know, if the people that you hire to not tend to be like-minded, then they're going to refer people that they know. And it's like you. So those could just be some possibilities why you don't see the same like you don't see a lot of access or like di diversity within the space but um long answer but uh it's complex and i think you have to be very intentional and deliberate about not only understanding the history the cultural nuance but also like deliberate about the actions that you take to to uh make it more balanced i really i really appreciate everything that you're saying and helping to illuminate and how do you think our policymakers could be more intentional with the policy that they're creating to kind of acknowledge and address some of these issues? Well, I think one of the things that's happened over the past few years is you're seeing more of a, not only like a national, but like global acceptance of, of cannabis. I think you're starting to see those stigmas change. Like people are understanding that there might be, you know, there are, uh, you know, health and wellness benefits that are associated with it. So the more that uh, that becomes normalized, I think the more likely you are to see, uh, you know, folks change their attitudes and their minds and their motivations and behaviors around the plant, the industry, and what it can do to save lives and, and create wealth. Uh, you, you can also take a look at um, some of the programs that are already in place. Um, you know, there are several states uh, that have, um, that have you know created and um, like adopted social equity programs, and you know those social equity programs uh, tend to uh, try to create opportunities for um, uh, communities uh, that have been you know dis disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Um, by saying, okay, we're going to have a certain amount of, like one example might be, okay, if we, our state is going to give out 40 licenses, maybe we give, I don't know, like 10 of them to uh, social equity applicants. And there's, you know, uh, guidelines to determine if you're qualified and things like that. Uh, so you tend to hear a lot of the criticisms about how those programs have the potential to be abused, how you might have folks that um, like take predatory, have predatory practices 
you know, let's say you're somebody that's lucky enough to get a, a social equity license because you meet all the criteria, but you might not have the the resources and the capital to actually start your operation. Um, well, if there's somebody that is not a social equity social equity, you know, applicant, but has the resources, then it's very feasible that that person could come in and help you, but take a very large percentage of your operation. And at the end of the day, like, yeah, you might be helping your community, but is it really helping the people that the is that it was intended to help? So I think there's a lot that uh, of work that can be done, but at least like we're starting to see policymakers look at, you know, those programs, try to identify what the mistakes are and try to make improvements. So um, I think it's going to be extremely important, you know, as uh, more uh, states pass uh, legislation that create um, medicinal or uh, an adult use markets that they're paying attention to what has happened in the past and like what are some steps that you can take to mitigate you know systems from being abused um, some of the other things that policy makers can do and I think the industry can do as a whole better is to uh, have uh, you know, people of color have like more diverse, uh, more diversity in decision making offer in decision making roles. So if you have folks who understand like the cultural, uh, the cultural, you know, significance that I sort of, you know, uh, spoken to earlier in this uh, segment uh, that are in regulatory roles or are assisting in the decision making, um, you know, processes and, and policies, then I think that's a good thing. You bring a lot of diversity, you bring different perspective, different lenses into how uh, policies are crafted and how they're, you know, designed to support people. Um, so like, I'm not saying that race is like the only criteria, but the point is that you need to have varied perspective. Uh, and I think every aspect of this industry, whether it's, um, you know, you can't just have like diverse candidates on the front lines, you know, at the retail shops uh, and service roles like, you know, you grow by uh, having you grow by like through that diversity and all you know aspects of the supply chain and decision making roles as well. So to that point people that currently have cannabis business licenses or permits or in some way are, you know, a, um, a business in the cannabis industry, what are things that those people can do to, I think, live their values in a more impactful way, right? I think, you know, you kind of alluded earlier in the conversation to this sort of civil unrest, people posting on social media and saying, here's what, you know, our values are, what we're committed to. But then how do you turn that into true action and make it more impactful in your state or community that you're in um, so that you are as a business, not just saying something on social media, but you're also living it in the day to day life of your business? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways that you can take action and it doesn't always have to be direct. Right. Like um, but I'll speak to some of those those actions. So like. Uh, you're a small business owner, you have license, uh, you know, maybe take a look at the, the makeup of your organization, like from a human capital standpoint, you know, you, are you truly diverse, you know, in the actual operation of your team? And it's, um, take a look at uh, your, who do you do business with? 
who are your vendors? You know, is there diversity there? Look at the diversity within your supply chain. Look at, you know, if you are an organization that produces media, you know, let's say you're putting out a magazine, uh, how are the, who, what's being represented? You know, like if you have like a monthly magazine that goes out, are you only putting out, <clears throat> are you only showcasing, uh, you know, people of a certain, you know, gender or color, for example? Um, think about like the optics of what you're creating uh, the, and the underlying messages that's, uh, you know, being seen uh, through those types of things. Um, and your marketing materials, when you're promoting your products and your brand, like is, is it diverse? <laughs> um, when you're looking at, uh, like if you're hosting a conference and you're doing a webinar series, uh, is it very homogenous or are you actively like looking for diversity in the types of, you know, people that you choose to speak or moderate or interview and things like that? Uh, there's a lot of different things that you can do that um, can show that you're trying to show a varied you know, perspective with the way that you do business. And it's not always about like who you hire and who you employ, uh, but those are direct actions. Um, and I think, you know, some of the stuff that I talked to about like from marketing and promotional and publicity standpoint, that's important too. Um, and that's why I think it's important that you have like diversity within your staffing and, and within your vendors, because then you bring those very perspectives so that folks who might not even see those things or see the lack of representation um, can be informed about it. Um, who you support, you know, if you have the resources and the means to, you know, give and be a philanthropist, uh, are you supporting organizations that are also trying to advocate for um, a more equitable and like just, uh, you know, industry? Um, are you like, volunteer work that's an opportunity too you know are there opportunities for your staff to support is there ways that you can give back are there ways that you can uh yeah, so there's like a there's really like a breadth of of actions that you can take um and i know that uh like a lot of companies like this year uh have you know taking steps internally to have uh you know, not only like working groups, but, uh, you know, committees that are going to uh, address some of these types of uh, opportunities, you know, internally. Um, but those are just like some examples that immediately come to mind. I think those are all really, really great examples. So I appreciate you kind of outlining that list because that was just a, that was like a whole, you know, backpack of potential things that a company could pull from to, I just think, more directly live their values. Um, so as some of these other states that we see are, they're considering, right, cannabis legalization, many states. And if you could design like an ideal roadmap for a state that is, you know, considering, let's say, medical and adult use legalization, um, what would that roadmap look like so that it, it, you know, more directly addresses some of these concerns about equity and access? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, similar to what I said uh, like a little earlier, I do think that it's going to be important to have some type of social equity uh, program or provision or guidelines that you're, that you're using. Um, I think that's, that's a necessity from the, like the moment that the, the market you know, opens. Um, 
do you have provisions in place that are going to allocate a certain amount of resources uh, for uh, communities that have been disadvantaged, right? Um, I think you have to do that from the beginning. Uh, and uh, then it's about, you know, finding ways that you can, again, be intentional about uh, being inclusive. So I would probably, this is more like, you know, maybe creating some recommendations about what some states could do, you know, when there's a new market, you know, take a look at, understand your demographics, right? Understand like the population uh, and uh, like the demographics of your state, your localities where you're going to have, um, you know, cannabis operations. Um, and understand, uh, try to become educated about like the histories, like within, you know, those communities, those counties within that state, you know, where I grew up in Virginia has a very distinct, you know, history than it does like in Colorado or, you know, any other state. Um, so like the approaches might be different, but, uh, you know, I'd probably look to see if there are any statewide, uh, industry associations that already exist that are tackling these prop that are tackling like, uh, uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, access type uh, efforts. Uh, are they groups that you can potentially align with? Um, I think you need to have the legislatures uh, need to have, uh, you know, committees, uh, commissions, uh, experts that they can work with who understand uh, these, the areas, you know, these types of things that we're talking about today um, to ensure that the perspectives are getting included into policies. Um, one of the things that I think would be awesome to see uh, more broadly is uh, taking a look at our educational systems. And if you really do think that this industry is one that's gonna be here to stay, uh, then are there institutions in your state that are creating, you know, um, programs and learning opportunities like you know academic programs that allow folks to graduate and then enter into the space similarly are there you know trade and technical schools or are there certain skill sets uh that uh can also do the same you know every like uh like you know the future farmers of america for example or your like uh, local your 4-h extension agency that works with agriculture and things like that you know are there programs that are designed to help people get skills that can help that can that can support this industry whether it's cultivation and farming or whether it's you know doing something that's uh you know like more corporate uh, but i think you have to really tackle what all the opportunities are and how you can get more people involved. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing through some collaborations is working with some HBCUs, which are historically black colleges and universities. And, you know, like there's several in Virginia, for example, that I'm trying to connect with who, um, and I, I really do think that, you know, if you can be intentional about saying there's a pipeline for graduates to enter this industry, then you're creating opportunities. And um, so I think those are, again, all different ways that you can uh, can create growth, um, and I don't think it necessarily all has to happen at the policy level. But you know, some of those examples that I used are very like can also be like local based. Uh, 
but I think the approach is still the same. Like, what are you doing within the geographic scope that you can control that is about bringing people in and becoming more inclusive and making sure that you have diversity in those decision-making processes so that you can look at it at a more holistic and inclusive lens. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. What are your thoughts on expungement? You know, I, I feel like that's a very common topic that pops up in this industry is what states are expunging records and which ones maybe aren't taking action and what that means um, just for the history of uh, cannabis prohibition as well as equity and access. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it needs to happen, right? Um, so I, I think that it can be very, can be very uh, difficult for, um, I think, folks who might not understand like the history um, around the plant, um, policing and law enforcement practices, uh, the war on drugs and how you can you have folks that might you know spend 20 25 years or longer behind bars for minor um, marijuana possession right um, sometimes we're talking like uh, yeah I don't know like yeah, like a dime bag and they're in jail for like 25 years yeah yeah and it just seems I mean, and it just seems like ridiculously hypocritical when at the moment like let's be clear that you know the plant is still federally illegal you know and states have said that um certain states have said okay well it's it, it's legal within this jurisdiction for uh medicinal or recreational use uh but it's when you see someone like that'll be you know have their life ruined behind bars for decades for small quantities of the same plant that someone else who has like the right, you know, connections and the right legal teams and the right protections can make millions and millions of dollars off of. It's just not right. It's not moral. It's not fair. Um, I think uh, I'd like to see, I'd like to see it happen. I'd like to see like uh, um, more expungement records in place. I'd like to see uh, more workforce reentry uh, steps and programs that are designed to help folks uh, get into uh, get into the into the workforce, whether they choose to get into the cannabis industry or not. Um, and I think ultimately, like, hey, I'm not a legal professional, but I think there will always sort of be like some type of line, right? Um, where you know maybe somebody had like uh, someone serving time because they had you know. Uh, cannabis possession, but maybe there's also, you know, something else that is some other charge that's like, you know, aligned with that. I think the courts are ultimately going to have, the states are going to have to decide like where that line looks like. But, you know, if you're looking at these situations where somebody had a little bit of weed and they're serving a long, 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 long sentence and a lot of other people are, you know, smoking the same amount freely and selling even more and making millions without any like legal, it just does not seem like it's a balanced system. So uh, I'd like to learn more about how I can support expungement. Like there are some things that I'm doing through groups that I'm working with, but, uh, but yeah, I'd like to see the, see that become more adopted.
this issue like it's it's much more complex than expungement it's just something that i kind of see as like a constant conversation um and you know just many people aren't happy with what the states are doing and it does seem like a glaringly obvious just discrimination and um i don't know i think there's something very real to like not acknowledging the history of something trying to like sweep that under the rug and then um just create a new on top that will come back to haunt us forever. I, I just, I don't think it's how, how we as people are supposed to operate. I think we're supposed to be keeping the history in mind as we're going forward um, personally. And I just think expungement is one of those areas where you, you see it. Um, beyond expungement, there's, I guess, another thing that I'd be interested in hearing your opinion on is sort of how these states are spending the tax revenue and the regulatory licensing fees um, that they're receiving. And I'm, I'm not very well versed on what's happening in Colorado and I'm only getting smart on what's happening with our tax money here in Michigan. And it's kind of appalling. Um, but it also seems like another obvious way to me to like take some of the money that the state is making from standing up this new industry to help create equity and access and I can't say that I've seen a good model for that yet. And it's not that it, it might exist and I'm just not aware of it. Um, but it oftentimes seems like our tax money, the tax money that's being produced through this new industry isn't um, going back into the communities that need it the most, going back into helping to create equity and access. It seems to just be moving to other places um, in the state's budget with no thought to the history of the industry. Um, and I still know if you have any thoughts on maybe how you're seeing some of these states use this additional tax revenue and if there's ways they could be doing that better. Yeah. So I, I will say that I'm not up to speed on how, you know, different uh, like locations, different cities, different states are handling uh, this, but it is important. You know, I'm glad you asked that question. It's definitely an opportunity that I, should use to become more educated. Um, I can speak a little bit towards like what I know that uh, Denver and some of the steps that Denver has taken. And um, I know that you can also see this like on their, their, their website, you go to like denvergov.org, uh, but you know, through some of their tax revenue, I know that uh, Denver has, was able to uh, double their affordable housing fund from uh, like 15 million to $30 million to build, um, it's like more than 5,000 uh, affordable housing units uh, within the city. Um, I know that they were able to appropriate, or sorry, dedicate more than uh, $9 million uh, towards like affordable housing programs last year through their special recreational marijuana tax. Um, for uh, about a five-year period, they were able to dedicate more than $10 million from their special sales tax and recreational marijuana to fund uh, free after school and summer programs for youth. And that focus was on underserved communities. Um, but that funding also supported diversion programs, which was which had a high focus on high need areas in, in Denver. Um, one of the other things that I know that they cited was that uh, the tax dollars can be used to help upgrade parks and recreation centers in Denver. Um, they created one uh like a they created a new a new recreation center uh, two years ago 
uh, called the Carla Madison Recreation Center. And um, that included over $3 million that came directly from marijuana tax proceeds. So those are some examples of how, you know, like locally here, uh, a significant portion, like millions and millions of dollars, like in tax revenue has been, you know, used to create uh, opportunities that either uh, make, you know, housing affordable, that's created, you know, public, uh, you know, recreation, um, you know, opportunities and things like that. Uh, so I think those are just some examples of what you can do uh, to utilize tax revenue. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, each state has, states have approached it differently. Um, but yeah, uh, I think, yeah, those are, those are just some opportunities that I, that I'm aware of. Um, and I know that that's not the end of the list of what can be done. <laughs> I'm glad that you like highlighted those. I will say just, I usually see better headlines in my opinion, come out of Colorado and Denver and things like this when I'm seeing how states are spending tax money. And I know Colorado has been, you know, legal longer, so it's had a chance to mature. And um, I'm hoping that some other states kind of look to maybe what Colorado is doing. I'm less familiar with California, Oregon, Washington. Um, and it's just top of mind because I'm starting to dive into this a little deeper in Michigan. And honestly, I'm appalled by where the tax money's going. It turns out we're, we're giving the FDA $20 million a year for clinical trials. So that to me just makes absolutely no sense. Um, so and I think it's an important, just a very important issue because there is a lot of money that's being generated by this industry, not just um, through the additional tax at point of sale, but at least in Michigan. And I think this applies to other states. There's, you know, a very hefty licensing fee that's you know associated with even being a licensed business. Um, and I think that portion of the money pie is not often talked about or, you know, I don't see much analysis around where, where those dollars are going, but it just seems to me, again, like acknowledging the history, you'd want to funnel some of that back into the communities that have been most affected by prohibition to address a lot of the issues that we're still seeing, even in legalization. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, I think, uh, yeah, so there's like a, I know in King County, uh, Washington, in uh, well, essentially like Seattle, uh, there's an organization, um, it's called like King County Equity Now, that is like the, uh, comprises about 60 uh, like black led uh, organizations that are working together to um, put a lot of pressure, quite frankly, on King County in terms of uh, getting them to uh, support efforts that promote like, um, black, like policy advocacy and research that supports like the black communities. Uh, and I know that um, cannabis is <laughs> directly falls like within that. Uh, so, you know, trying to do things by saying, okay, you need to dedicate a large or significant portion of like tax revenue to support uh, you know, uh, creating you know, new housing or to create, uh, you know, programs that are, that are going to support business ownership or, you know, they're tied to like economic growth that um, really like alleviates, I think, some of the uh, financial burden 
tax burden, spending burden for communities that have been like the most harm, um, some of the like, socially disadvantaged communities. Uh, I'm not up to speed on what you know, everything that they've done um, lately, but uh, again, you know, we're talking about um, Washington State also being around having an adult use market for roughly the same period that Colorado has. And I think you're seeing a lot of um, like grassroots advocacy efforts that are attacking this equity problem, uh, like in the Pacific Northwest. So that's another group to pay attention to. Um, I think you're going to start to see some, some cool things coming out of, uh, you know, Seattle, King County. That's awesome. I'm glad you highlighted that. I just wrote all that down so that I can do my own research. So I think that's really cool and good for the listeners to hear. You know, I mean, especially here in like the Midwest and, you know, on the East Coast, I think we're looking to the West Coast to understand how to do the licensing and and, and things like this. But um, there's also really good examples of how to address these equity and access issues, too. So, yeah, actually, Actually, yeah, one of the things I know that that group is doing is like, and it's audacious, but uh, they're they're putting pressure on King County to establish a $1 billion anti-gentrification land acquisition fund to help Black community acquire property. Uh, so, you know, if special, like if, you know, tax revenue from the sales of the plant can go to support that, then like that's a direct way to support, you know, communities that have not had like the the same type of access to, you know, generational wealth or property or land ownership. Um, so we'll see how that goes. I think that could be really cool if it they succeed. Yeah, that is really cool. That is such an important issue. Um, like all around, I mean, even kind of you alluded to earlier in the conversation about the housing kind of you seeing like less inventory for housing and housing prices increasing in Colorado as the legal market matured. And I think we'll see something similar here in Michigan, which creates its own issues just for residents of Michigan. But then there's also, um, I think, limited business inventory for people to find property where they could open up a cannabis business. And because the inventory is so limited, it, it becomes ridiculously expensive very, very quick. So that's very, very interesting solution. I like it. I think that's creative. And I'm a fan of grassroots things like, you know, I appreciate our state policymakers, but I usually I feel like some of the best solutions like bubble up from the communities, the people on the ground, um, kind of what we've been talking about today. Sometimes our policymakers are uh, out of touch with um, what it what it means to live in anybody else's like, you know, walk in anybody else's shoes but their own. And so it makes it really hard to for them to design thoughtful policy. And we see that with cannabis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't, yeah, no comment on that. I agree. <laughs> I'm not saying I want their job, right? I, I, I'm sure it's difficult, but and it's so easy from the outside to be like, what, the, what are you doing? You should do it this way instead. Um, but hey, that's why we're here. We can have an opinion. Um, so what I'd love to like learn more from you is just what can the listeners do, the Cannabis Curious listeners do to support BIPOC Cam? Yeah, so one of the things that, um, again, as mentioned, I made this transition earlier in the year. Uh, so just you know, a few months into this operation, uh, one of the ways that I'm funding it uh, is through uh, membership uh, inclusion. 
Uh, right now I have it set up for like annual, uh, annual rates, but I imagine at some point going into 2021, there'll be a shift to, yeah, you know, make that uh, more accessible, like through monthly options. Uh, but yeah, you know, if this is something that you're interested in, you know, learning more about or interested in, in supporting, uh, you have the, the options, some of the options to be a member include uh, joining as a, an individual supporter. Um, so currently around $50 for a year, but that's about to increase um, very soon uh, to, well, actually by the time this comes out, it'll be $100 for the year. And you can also join as a business. Uh, when, and as I mentioned earlier, like when businesses join, I also do the visibility piece. Like I want to, you know, have their logo, uh, have their, you know, information about their brand, and you know, included not only on the website but to also uh, promote them uh, through various marketing channels. So there's different tiers for small businesses. Um, it can, or different tiers, and it, you know, can. So if you have a small business, if you're a solopreneur, if you run like a nonprofit or a cause-related organization, or if you're more corporate, then there is an appropriate level for each for each one. So <clears throat> obviously, like uh, becoming a member will not only let you get connected to other uh, members of this network. Uh, I have a private like online uh, app and group that is being used to for discussion, for idea exchange, to do collaborations and partnerships and try to identify like ways that you can create business together. Uh, so that's a cool perk. Um, but yeah, you know, it would definitely help support uh, sort of the operations of what I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, other ways for getting involved, if there, you know, I'm also open to, I'm open to, I'm interested in getting the message out. So sort of like what you were able to do for me, you've created a platform and opportunity for me to share my story and share, you know, my history and like where I'm going. And that's helpful too. You know, it lets me be able to like represent um, what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And I think that, uh, you know, opportunities to be seen, opportunities to be heard are also very, very critical in terms of changing uh, equity and access. Um, coming from the sports world, like I, like I said earlier, uh, there's this, uh, you know, popular saying that you can't be what you can't see. Um, so a lot of times that alludes to, you know, if you, if you see someone that's like you, that looks like you, that represents you in a place of success, then you have this role modeling effect. You have this, uh, now like this, uh, desire to at times, like want to try to follow that same path and do it, do that, do that thing, do that thing better. So creating opportunities for visibility uh, for like not only like my brand, but for the folks within it uh, is one way to help. And if you're just interested in learning more about like what we're doing, then you can subscribe to the newsletter. And I put out at the moment like a monthly, a monthly newsletter that really talks about uh, what has happened. You know, some some things that are upcoming uh, events, you know, special offers uh, also, you know, put. Uh, yeah, just like the latest happenings within the industry that pertain to this space. So uh, I think those are all some ways that we can, you know, that are helpful. Thank you. I'm definitely going to take you up on some of those. I'm definitely signing up for the newsletter and someday I'd love to be a business member too. So um, 
hopefully Love to have you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you and i hope the listeners take advantage i really do think that a large portion of my audience is concerned about this issue and doesn't always know what to do to affect it so i'm i'm really excited you know about them having the opportunity to listen to this podcast get to know you better and get to know bipod cam better so i hope that there'll be folks that are listening that that I just have a lot of takeaways from from what um, you're sharing and then some actions, not just new insights and thoughts, but take new action. Um, so what else, like what can listeners expect from BIPOC Can in the future? What does 2021 look like? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get through 2020 first, but, uh, but yeah, so for the future, um, let's, Let's say, you know, for the next few months, uh, I know that uh, it, it takes time to you know, build a brand to for for, uh, you know, the industry to know, like what it is that you do, who you are and what you're trying to you know, accomplish. So uh, over these next few months, at least through the end of the calendar year, uh, I, you know, there's opportunities already, like for me and other members of BIPOC can to um, participate in some virtual conferences. Uh, there's more, you know, interviews and podcast recordings that are coming out. Uh, going into 2021, I know that I'll be working like more closely with some, uh, with some groups that are also aligned in you know, some of the areas that I'm fighting for in terms of, uh, you know, greater equity and access and ownership. Uh, so, you know, through some collaborations, uh, whether it's like supporting, um, you know, business conferences, uh, like in working with like the HBCU. Uh, networks. Uh, one of them is, you know, working with a business member and uh, partner who has like a full end-to-end, you know, recruiting uh, platform. So uh, trying to build the infrastructure so that when people are trying to look for, you know, like I said, diversity in like uh, the workforce hiring or trying to find uh or to you know try to find um, or trying to support uh, business owners or aspiring business owners through you know t- professional development training certifications and access to capital. You know what I'm doing over these next few months is really trying to lay that groundwork, build the infrastructure, so that we can have some more success going into uh, 2021. Um, I'm. Very interested in what's happening in Virginia for a lot of reasons. Um, like I said, it's my hometown. They decriminalized earlier uh, this summer, um, and literally a few days ago, uh, their first like limited medical cannabis market was open. There's a ton of opportunity there, uh, so I will be doing a lot more uh, active work through some personal and professional relationships with in the educational space, within like uh, local and state legislation uh, to have more of a impact and presence here. So. That's gonna feel good to go home. And like, I, it's like coming full circle for you a little. So that's gotta feel nice. Yeah, I'm excited for it, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Virginia could use your help, <laughs> so. Um, where can listeners find out more about BIPOC Camp? Yeah, again, the website is uh, BIPOCANN.com. And uh, you can also, that's a great starting point. Um, you can also follow 
me on uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, it's all of those places. dot uh, com slash bipocan. <laughs> so at bipocan at all of those social places. Um, but those are probably like the best uh, places to start. Uh, I'm also very active on LinkedIn, so you can find me just at through my personal platform if you just want to connect uh, directly, and it's Ernest L. Tony. Perfect. Um, I think that's great. You've got a presence everywhere, so people can find you wherever, wherever they prefer. Um, have a good day, and I will talk to you soon. All right. You take care. Bye.